Welcome to Being Human. I am delighted to say I am here with an extraordinary man. This is David Heinemar Hansen. He is the creator of Ruby on Rails, which will mean a lot to uh, those of you in the, the uh, programming trade or in the software industry. Uh, he's the co-founder of Basecamp, best-selling author of, of three books, which I've got here, uh, which I'm sure we'll, we'll dive across, including It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work, Remote and, and Rework, um, about how to do business differently, how to approach the workplace differently, which, which are brilliant, and a successful racing driver. And as I understand it, uh, who wants one Le Mans in your class category? Is, is that right? That's right. 2014 with Aston Martin. That was a glorious year. Right. And all on a 40-hour week and getting eight hours sleep. <laughs> yes, I think it's a lot about uh, creating space for those things as a serial endeavor, not trying to do all of those things at once. Um, yeah. Everything you read out is the product of a... 25 plus year career where I've done a lot of things, but one at a time. Right. Got it. Um, and as we've got 45 minutes, because I know you've got to take your, your kids to school, which we'll obviously uh, respect. Uh, let's just start with a little bit of your, your, your backstory, how you got interested initially in, in programming and, and the Ruby on Rails, which obviously you developed. And then we can, we can talk about yeah, your, your role as, as leader. Uh, of of Basecamp and and what you've learned and shared about building great work cultures. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, so I am from 1979, and the first computer I was exposed to was the Commodore 64 when I was five years old. This is in '84. Um, the next year, I got my first computer myself. This was the Armstrad 464, I think, with cassette tapes when right. you were loading the software on. You'd be typing it in. Computers back then simply started up in a programming language, which I think is quite remarkable. Um, the Commodore 64, the Amstrad, all the computers of that time booted you straight into a compiler, a basic compiler, and you actually had to type a little tiny program to even start any of the other programs you had. For me, those programs that were interesting were video games. Games of all kinds. I absolutely just loved games from the first time I sat with the joystick. I think my first vivid memory of a game is Yia Kung Fu, which is a <laughs> fighting game for the Commodore 64. I remember the whole street was gathered at this one kid's house who had the computer, and we would take our turns. And I got just smitten right away. And I thought for the longest time, hey, do you know what? This is what I want to do. I want to create video games. So I tried to teach myself how to program. Once when I was about, I think, seven or eight, I was typing in programs from the back of a magazine. They would list the source code right, in yeah. published magazines back then. And you'd type them in and it'd take like 45 minutes to type it all in. And then you would hit enter and you'd realize you made a spelling mistake somewhere along the way and good luck trying to find it. So I did not learn how to program back then. I tried once more when I was, I think, uh, maybe 12, 13, 14, something like that. Um, a programming language called Easy Amos, which I thought, like, you know what? Easy is literally in the name of this programming environment. I should be able to figure it out. But nope, I could not figure it out. And it's funny because I remember the things I did not understand. I remember thinking, variables, why would you want to assign something new to it? Or a loop, what does it mean that it just keeps going round and round? And I still didn't get it. And then I kind of just gave up a little bit. I gave up um, teaching myself how to program, and then I befriended a bunch of programmers instead. So I thought, you know what? If I can't teach myself how to program, at least I can be around programmers, I can hang out, and I can do all those things. So I got into 
first BPS culture. This was basically pre-internet. You would dial in to a mm. single website, and I would run one of those websites, as it were. And then the internet came around. Ninety-five. Um, I just got totally into it. I was like, you know what? I don't know how to program, but I can write about video games. I started a bunch of video game websites, right. and I ran those uh, for a good like five years while I was in high school. And then in two thousand, we made a full-on community site, as you will. It had forums, it had all these things. And I taught myself sort of how to program during that. Fast forward another three years, I had kind of uh, gotten enough of a hang of PHP. This is like, I'm like 1920 at that point. So yeah, I was going to say, so exactly you did early in high school. So you were, you were very yes. entrepreneurial right from the start, right? I definitely were. I mean, the entrepreneurial part, the organizational part, mm. the wrangling of multiple people around a project and a vision part, that thing I got into quite early. Um, I remember when I was in high school, I ran this one gaming website called The Console. And I had something like nine writers on staff, like no one's getting paid anything. But what I was doing, again, I'm whatever, 15, 16 or something at a time, I would go down to my local video game store and I would just hassle management to let me borrow the games. Like I couldn't afford to buy all the games. They'd be like, "Hey, can you?" I mean, I'll I'll put a little note into your thing, and they were like, "What's even the internet?" Um, but my uh, my my teacher in high school called me the editor, so I thought like, you know what? That's kind of fun. And it's funny when you look back upon that and go, so many of those lessons of how to corral people around a vision, especially yeah. when you can't use money to incentivize them. Right. Carries forward. They carry it into the open source world that I did, and then they also do carry it into the commercial world. You can pay people to work for you. That's how most working arrangements work. But you know what? You will get far more out of them if you also inspire them. Right. And that, mm, I don't know if I want to say capacity, but that instinct for realizing that we need more than bread, I think mm. I can trace all the way back to that. That it is more about that. We need a higher, if not calling, that sounds almost too ostentatious. We need like a purpose. We need a, why are we doing this? In, in, in service of what? I mean, we can do work all the time and we can realize, oh, we're doing it for money. Do you know what? I don't find that personally very inspiring. I don't think most people do. But the good thing is we can combine those two things. It's not an opposition. It's not either purpose or money. There's a way to do business. There's a way to work where you find the overlap, like what is the Japanese term, kaigi or something? The overlap oh, between right. what I've you're good the, at. The diagrams, yeah. Yes, exactly. What you can pay, be paid at, what has a purpose, what's good for the world. So I trace sort of all of that back to those early days, and I can still draw upon those lessons. I can draw upon the conflict resolution we were trying to figure out, especially when you're dealing with volunteers, where it's really as pure as that. They can walk away anytime. Like, I don't have like, oh, my mortgage depends on me being nice to you. Like, I literally had to convince people that this was a good idea. They should keep working on this. They should keep contributing to it. Um, and I think having- what, what was the purpose of your business back then? I'm intrigued now. Well, the, the, the console, as it was, was just a free video game website. And what we were doing, we were reviewing games and we were putting them out there and we weren't getting paid, at least not in the early days. Um, so the whole purpose was just doing it for the love of video games. Like, right. hey, do you know what? I really like video games. I can write about them online. We can talk to other people who like video games. This is great. Then later on, um, it did develop into being more of a direct commercial thing. I graduated high school. And at some point you realize, oh, shit, um, paying the rent. Do you know what? That takes money. Let's find a way to turn this whole endeavor into something that can actually pay. In the early days, it was something like um, when I was running the console gaming sites, ad sales. 
early ad okay. sales back in the late 90s, early 2000s, convincing video game publishers that they should do things with us and so forth. And I even got like kind of associated with the whole dot-com boom, as it were. This is back in Copenhagen, Denmark. So right. a little bit removed from Silicon Valley, but still heavily yeah. influenced. So we had um, kind of, we had incubators. I don't know if you remember those. There's basically mm-hmm. VC companies going like, hey, why, why should we pay top dollar for companies that are already started? We could just start a bunch ourselves. So I was part of one of those. Didn't pan out very well. The whole industry didn't pan out very well, certainly in Denmark. A bunch of these companies I worked for, they went bankrupt. And I had the great privilege of working for at least what I, at the time, thought were truly bad bosses. And I thought, you know what? This is an incredible education. I am learning far more from bad leadership than I could ever hope to extract from a single class at the Copenhagen Business School, which I would later attend. So just taking all of those things out of it and then kind of piece together, like, what do you actually like? What do you actually want to do? And I ended up with the conclusion, mm, do you know what? I'm ill-suited for working for other people. I'm, right. I'm too loud. I'm too obnoxious. I have too many ideas. I'm too contentious. I'm all the things that um, perhaps push a lot of folks into becoming entrepreneurs. And that's then what happened um, in the mid-2000s. Right. And, and w- at what point were you developing Ruby, Ruby on Rails? So this was um, 2003. I'd been selling my programming chops, which at that time had only barely been hatched, to Jason Freed, my now business partner of 20 plus years. I was sitting in Copenhagen, Denmark. Um, He had this web design company called 37 Signals that I was following online. There was a blog called signalversusnoise.com, which is still online, by the way, with full history back to 99, I think. Um, And he was writing about, oh, I have this idea for a piece of software. I'm trying to teach myself PHP. He wrote up a problem. Is there anyone on the internet who can help me? This was before Stack Overflow. This was certainly before AI. This was before all these things. People would just ask, like, the internet, is there anyone who can help me? And Jason did that. I replied seven time zones away from Copenhagen, Denmark. Hey, uh, I actually know how to solve this because I was a fan of the company. I just wanted to help him. Uh, And that developed quite quickly into Jason realizing it was easier to hire me than it was to learn how to program. So we started working together. We started doing client projects together. And then in 2003, we started working on Basecamp together which was basically the answer to our own problems dealing with clients over email. Things would fall through the cracks. As soon as you had more than three people on an email thread, it would kind of become a mess. And we realized, you know what? There's got to be a better way. There's got to be a more professional way. I remember we had this one instance with a customer where we just looked like fools. We had promised something and then we had to follow up on it. We sent the wrong file. All of the things that happened to everyone who tried to organize long-running projects over email happened to us. And we realized we could fix this first just for ourselves. We were just going to build an internal tool. But um, we started building this tool. Halfway through, we realized, you know what? This could be a project or a product. And I had been building it with Ruby. And what was so interesting about Ruby at the time was that it was not well known in the West at all. It had like a tiny but passionate fan base. It didn't really have a customer base. There weren't a lot of people in the West using this for commercial projects. But there were people, including very smart people like Dave Thomas and Martin Fowler and others who were just really intrigued with the language, was using the language to teach general programming principles. And I thought, we have free reign here on this one project. I don't have a client. No client is telling me, you got to use this, you got to use that. I can use whatever I want. I chose Ruby and I gave myself two weeks to figure out, "Mm, do you know what? Can I even do this? I mean, Mm. I'm, I'm not even thinking of myself as a programmer at this point. I'm technically getting paid to do programming but I'm viewing it as a tool. 
Anyway, two weeks passes by and my head just explodes. I just go like, this is what I've been waiting for. Literally since 90 or 85. When I first started to program basic, I, I'm not really getting it. Here I'm two weeks into Ruby and I'm getting it. I'm getting all of it. I'm just like, this is the language I've been working, waiting for. And that, that turned into me building this toolbox called Ruby on Rails, which is a web development framework that we use to build Basecamp. Um, we've used to build Hey.com. We've used to build all our products and everything from GitHub to Shopify uses it. Uh, Twitter was started on it. Airbnb, all these major things came afterwards. From that little epiphany, eureka moment of me going, this is an incredible programming language. This is the, the missing piece I had. Now I'm a programmer. Right, right. And then you were like, and then and you added around that. So you... So what's interesting to me is that Ruby on Rails, which was the toolkit, there was nothing like that that existed at that time. You were sort of first out the gate putting these tools together. In Ruby, in that way, yes. I mean, there were other web frameworks, so to speak, in other languages, but a lot of them were, and I say this as a term of endearment, they were very nerdy. Like they required someone to do a lot of hand assembly on their own, and that was a feature. It was a feature just like the original Apple. You got like a circuit board and they were like, here, build a computer. Here's some schematics. Do you want to put it all together? And a lot of people were like, yes, this is the most interesting thing in the world. This is like a Lego set. What I love to do is actually build the computer. I don't really care. I mean, I care, but the main thing is to build the computer, not to use the computer. And then there's a much larger set of people who are just like, I would just like a computer, please. I don't need to solder the chips on myself to get that sense of accomplishment from using this device. And Ruby on Rails was a little bit the same way, although still targeted at programmers. It was targeted at programmers who did not feel the need to make every single soldering decision themselves. Yeah. That I thought, you know what, this is silly. Why are we all deliberating about what to call our database column primary ID keys, for example? It's just this concept yeah. that at the time people were like, oh, it should be called uh, this underscore that, it should be uppercase, it should just be ID. And I just went, can we just make this decision once for everyone and then move on to more interesting problems we can solve together? And that's what Ruby on Rails was. It was basically a compilation of a ton of decisions that I felt didn't really matter. We just had to make them and then you could build on top of it. So that became the toolkit. It became this notion, we're still calling it that, the full stack the full stack framework, like everything you need to build a web application is in the box. Batteries included is another term people use about it. Um, and I thought, you know what? This is what I would have wanted. When I really got started trying to learn how to program, perhaps I would have stuck to it when I was 14 right. if it was that easy to get to Hello World and talk to a database. But the main area where people fail to progress in their programming career is the very first step. It's climbing the initial hump of just getting the computer to talk back to them. That's actually yeah. really difficult for a lot of people and needlessly so. So Ruby on Rails tried to solve that for programmers, but also for sort of for non-programmers. Programmers like myself who like maybe aspire to become programmers, but didn't actually have the chops yet to become it. Let's make it so easy for them. They can get on the train and then they can become great programmers one day. They can become whatever they want, but we have to get them on the train. It can't just be this whole discipline is gatekept by people who have a computer science degree from a major mm -hmm. university. Yeah. 
Well, that's fascinating just because now what comes to mind is the, the advancement of a lot of the AI tools now because we, we're seeing that at another level, right? And people drawing yes. diagrams on, on whiteboards and turning it into working code, right, through, through AI. And I love that. I love the tutor aspect of AI. That's how I'm using AI now. I'm using AI as a pair programmer, as we like to say. Mm. Someone to bounce code off. Someone to go. Someone to ask for, like, do you know how this API works? And of course they do. They're AI. Um, I don't fully buy yet that the, let me just draw a diagram. It's going to turn into a working piece of software. And then that working piece of software is something I can evolve in a way. Maybe that's going to happen. It probably will eventually. It's not quite where we are yet. So I'm in this middle space between the total exuberant uh, enthusiasm, like, oh, yeah, all programmers are now obsolete, and, and this doesn't mean anything. Um, this is just a gimmick. Somewhere in the middle, it is not a gimmick. It is absolutely real. Most programmers should have an AI by their side as a pair programmer. And I also think even if you don't know programming, talking to a computer and seeing them work is actually a great way to learn. Um, are we going to get to the point where, where the computer is just writing everything? Like in some ways, I kind of hope so, I guess. I mean, I really like programming. Um, but I also think there's just a tremendous amount of human potential locked up in the idea that people don't even have to learn this esoteric language to be able to communicate their ideas and their expressions into a pro uh, into a computer. I mean, this is one of the things I, um, I found living in Spain for many years. I never picked up Spanish to my regret. And now I'm ever so chuffed to see that there are live, real-time AI translators where I can speak English into a device and it comes out in Spanish and the person speaks Spanish into the device and it comes out in English. Do you know what? That's good. Like, that's a good thing for humanity that makes us more capable, more productive. Um, so I don't fear that AI future at all. I totally welcome it. But um, it's also very delicious that we just don't know where it's going to... Is it tomorrow? Like, is it next week this is happening? I mean, if you look back six months, an amazing amount of progress has been happening, but yeah. we're like, I don't know. Um, I mean, one of the things I've been most inspired about this is to see these, um, the movies you can now make, right? right? It's not just still images. It's not just um, text. It's literally moving pictures. And I go like, these are incredible. I ju you just see these clips, they're like four seconds long. And you go like, the costume design is immense like i would watch that movie can can you please make those four seconds into something longer um so i think we're in for a hell of a ride as as humanity goes and i just go like what a time to be alive it feels like the dawn of the internet but even more extreme like i remember with the internet the first time you put something online and you realize someone from australia could be reading the thing i just published do you know what like five minutes ago that was a transatlantic multi-month publisher thing involving paper and printers to make that happen. And now I can push one button and it's happening. That's the kind of um, explosion I think AI is, is bringing us into. Interesting. And, and do you share the fears that this is going to cause mass unemployment and societal issues or, or, or not? Uh, yes, but. So I am certain it's going to cause mass societal kind of tumultuous uh, downstream effects. You look at the Industrial Revolution. We went from 97% of people working subsistence farming to 2% of people now supplying basically the entire uh, society with food, right? That's a momentous change. Then we went from um, 
blue collar jobs representing a huge part of uh, Western economies to representing a much, much smaller part of Western economies. Huge change. AI is that level change, I think. Um, is that going to have negative effects? Of course it is. Of course it is. Does anyone want to go back to when 97% of us were working the fields? Does anyone want to go back to when most of us were working the assembly lines, putting together the, the Model T for Ford? Mm, I don't think so. That's not saying that there weren't good things about that. I think there are plenty of critiques of modernity that we can have and they're good to have. But no one wants to go back because do you know what? You could. You could go back. If you want to be a substance farmer, like that's actually an avenue you could choose to pursue. And, very, and very few people a actually do. Right now, the whole off-breeding, it right? It's, yes. It's well, I mean, I think there's an aesthetic movement which has sort of a nostalgia to it. It's almost like playing vinyl over Bluetooth, right? Like we want sort of the the feel of something without it actually being the thing. Um, I don't have anything against that. I mean, I'm wearing a mechanical watch. What is that but an anachronism of just longing for a simpler time or something like that, right? But it's not the same thing. Like we're not going back to 97% of us doing mm. substance farming. And I don't think any of us is gonna go, want to go back to the pre-AI age once that's widely distributed. Right, yeah, that's nice. Um, so so you do, you've invented Ruby on Rails, you, you, you've put this product into the world, Basecamp, and, and then 37Signals switches, right, from being a primarily, primarily services company to the product based company. Yes, so that happens in, we release Basecamp, we've just celebrated our 20th anniversary of Basecamp, this project management tool that we introduced to the world, February 5th. 2004. So we've just passed 20 years. We're still running the service. Um, but it did shift the entire company from being a, a service operator, an agency, a web agency that was treating Basecamp as its third or fourth client. That's how we got to build this whole thing without having any risk. So many origin no stories. no outside money, right? No VC. No outside or... money. We were just funding it off the revenues of the agency which completely changed the equation and the origin story of what we were doing from the traditional risk everything, raise millions of dollars, I'm on my fourth mortgage, all my credit cards are maxed out, and we just made it. Like, I read that gripping story in the Elon Musk uh, biography, and I thought, like, what a tale, amazing, and utterly unlike anything I've ever been involved with, and thank heavens for that. Um, we never ran it like that. We ran a very conservative uh, operation where we did not switch the company from being an agency to uh, a software company until the software company could pay all of our salaries. And that happened in about 2005. And I think in early 2005, we said goodbye to our last agency client and we focused 100% on the customers we were selling software to. Right. And then, and this, and, I, and your experience in leading and building that. Uh, Business with with Jason is really the the basis of, of the three books I mentioned at the start, and um, which I know have inspired you know thousands, if if not hundreds of thousands of people across the you know there was a guy by co working space he's oh wow you've got David on <laughs> you know he'd read the books so um, but you know we've got quarter of an hour left I'm just wondering you know what's should we just start with a summary of of your ethos. As a leader yes. of 37 Signals, when it comes to building uh, work culture. Yes. Um, yeah, so we actually just a few days ago got noticed from the publisher that Rework, 
um, the first major book we published from 2010 has sold 1 million copies around go. the world. So I was out. Um, <laughs> it, wow. Which is crazy to me. And it's funny because it's one, it actually illustrates one of the uh, essays in the book called um, Overnight Success. So many right. people, they look at something that suddenly seems like it's huge and everything. And they, they think like, oh, how did that just happen? It didn't just happen. There's like 20 years behind most of those, as we say in the book, there's at least 10 years behind anything you describe as an overnight success. And I think that's true of that book as well. I mean, for 14 years, that book just kept selling. And now it's turned a million copies. It didn't sell a million copies out the gate. It did get on the New York Times bestseller list right away. But that actually doesn't take that much, we realized. I think you only have to sell, I mean, only 30,000 copies or something at the time to, to make the list. That's quite different from a million. Either way, the ethos of all the books is to, I mean, to sum it up in one word is difficult, but I'll just start from one angle. Embrace constraints. Constraints are not a bad thing. It's not bad to not have enough money, not have enough time, not have enough people. In fact, the most creative ideas, the most left field ideas, they come under the pressure of constraints. So we've chosen to not deny those constraints, not bemoan those constraints, but embrace those constraints. We don't want a huge company. We believe when it comes to software, for example, that large companies build large company systems. So if you want uh, an office that does everything for everyone 400 degrees east, um, you gotta go with Microsoft. You gotta have thousands of engineers working on that. If you want a base camp, if you want something that's really easy to understand that you can easily just introduce a coworker to, you don't have to send them a manual for how to figure it out, you should buy software from people who don't have thousands of engineers, <laughs> which we don't. We don't even have hundreds, right? Like at this time, we are just under 70 people, I think, at the company. When we wrote Rework, we were 40. And we realized that those constraints are good. And we applied those constraints, not just in terms of the company size, but also in terms of how we engaged with the creative process. As we say in the book, 40 hours is enough. Eight hours is plenty. I don't need more than a 40-hour week. I don't need more than an eight-hour day. In fact, even an eight-hour day is kind of sort of too long. Like, I can't stay in a creative, productive space for eight hours. If I get five hours of great productive programming time, that's a spectacular day, right? Like, that's Hall of the Fame month day. A lot of the other time is spent on all sorts of other stuff. So when I hear entrepreneurs brag about working 60, 70, 80, or 100 hours a week, I know that they're just padding that with bullshit. They're padding that with meetings. They're padding that with endless email threads. They're padding that with sort of not making decisions and not moving forward. So we thought, you know what? We can go back to first principles. And that's what these books are really about. Peeling everything back to first principles and going like, is this good? Is this working in the current context under the current premise? Because so much of business wisdom, if you will, is kind of just derived out of all sorts of contexts that don't apply to you. So mm. many of the best practices are extracted from multinationals, huge companies. And oftentimes, what you need to do is exactly the opposite. I once uh, gave a, speak at, uh, a speech at uh, Stanford called Unlearn Your MBA. And that could have been the subtitle to rework, really. I sort of kind of have half of a business, not sort of kind of, I have half a business degree. That's what I got from the Copenhagen uh, Business School. And it's not that those things are wrong. If I was going to be a division manager at GE selling pumps somewhere, do you know what? I think there's a bunch of those lessons that probably apply to the dot. They don't apply very well to running a software startup with 40 people or not even 40. We started with four people, right? 
those are it's just the opposite things that you need. So this idea of embracing constraints that there's enough time in a 40 week uh, or 40 hour week that there is enough capacity in a small team that these things are not bad. They're not even a stepping stone. This is the other thing people often get wrong. They almost kind of apologize for the early days. Oh, I'm sorry. We couldn't build everything. We're just like four people. What are you apologizing for? This is better. Like it is better products. It is better software for that niche. Again, it won't apply to everyone. Not everyone is going to love Basecamp. Could you use Basecamp to run GE, for example? I don't know. There probably is a team inside of uh, GE that uses Basecamp, but that's not our bread and butter. Most companies who use Basecamp, there are like 50 people less, certainly 100 people less. But also, that's most companies. Like that describes whatever, 99.97% of all companies in the world. Yeah, we forget that, don't we? We see exactly. all the big companies valorized. Which, which is one of the other essays in the book, which is the Fortune 5 million. A lot of software companies are fo focused on the Fortune 500 and like what the biggest companies in the world need. We're focused on the Fortune 5 million, what most people need most of the time when they're just getting started. So it has all of these things. And then we try to attack some of the uh, assumptions people have about business. Uh, one of the essays I just quoted here on the um, celebration of the 1 million copies sold was ASAP's poison. This idea that agent or urgency needs to be stressed in every interaction that you have with your colleagues and coworkers. This is ASAP. I needed uh, EOD, right? Like if everything is ASAP, first of all, nothing is ASAP. And second of all, that's just stress poison you're pumping straight into the organization, right? The times I say something is ASAP, first, I never use that term because it just makes me gag. But the times where I say something similar and I mean it is when we have an actual crisis, when the servers are on fire, customers can't access Basecamp. All right, fine. It's ASAP. We really need that to happen. Maybe once a year, like the two days before shipping, we're going to do that. But if ASAP is a pill you take every week, you're going to end up like just out of your head. You're just going to be running around in circles. And that's one of the other large principles we have in the book. It's not about getting more time. It's about using the time you have better. And the key way to use the time you have better is to ingest it into your creative process in long stretches of uninterrupted time. Mm. You can't use 45 minutes here and an hour and a half there, punctured day after day by meeting after meeting. This is why one of the other essays is called Meetings Are Toxic. This idea that you need two hours, three hours, four hours, five hours with no interruption, that's where you crack the hard nuts. That's when you actually create the peak value of the, of the organization. It's very difficult to do in a lot of companies, either because they're physically co-located in an open office, the absolute pit of hell for creativity. When you have everyone, you have phones ringing, you have people walking around in your periphery vision. Like You could not design a worse experiment for the creative endeavor than the open office. Right. I worked in quite a few open offices and... Literally, I credit the liftoff in my career with being able to get the hell out of there and shutting my own door. That is really the key, being able to shut that door and shut it all out and have five hours to really look at a problem and come up with an ingenious solution. Or not even ingenious, just a good solution. What I've found and what I've heard over and over again is people talk about, oh, I'm so busy. Oh, this week was crazy. And then it's Friday. And then they have to account, what did I actually accomplish? Well, I certainly had a lot of meetings. And on Friday, we had this thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What ball did you move forward? What mattered? 
I think this goes exactly to the core of what David Graeber describes in Bullshit Jobs, his uh, seminal article from 95 and, and later a book as well. There was a, um, a study in the UK saying something like 35% of all workers in the UK think that they have a bullshit job, that if they did not show up tomorrow, the world wouldn't even notice, like it wouldn't even matter. And I think that's just a, that's a human tragedy that goes back to some of the, the curses of modernity, right? When 97% of us were out there in the field, we could see the product of our labor. All right, either the hay gets chopped or it doesn't get chopped, right? Like I was part of that process, I did that. I signed off on a bunch of emails last week and held two powwow brainstorming sessions and what the hell happened with that, right? I think there's just great existential dread lurking under the modern uh, office uh, dynamics, whether it's digital or physical. And these books are kind of like a a protest song against all of that and saying, do you know what? No, you do not need to do this. And by the way, I'm not just a bard. I'm not just singing this song. We did it. Here's one example. I can't promise you that all companies are going to be like this, but I can give you one one piece of hope that it does not have to be like this. And the way we work, say 40 hours a week, 80 hours uh, or eight hours a day is enough, long stretch of uninterrupted time, all the stuff I've just been talking about. That's not an opposition to success. We've done quite so very well. Thank you very much. And we've kept going for over 20 years. And we've been able to do all of these things. And I've been able to enjoy hobbies like racing cars for 24 hours around Lamar because of it. Now, is that an outlier? Of course, it's an outlier. Everything is an outlier. But it is a directional path clearing too. Do you know what? There are other people who could follow that. And if we had had uh, one-tenth the success that we've did, if we had one-hundredth of the success that we've did, I would have been able to enjoy like 98.7% the same lifestyle as I do today. Yeah. Yeah. And you've obviously seen you stuck to your principles. As you said, that the book was was uh, released 10 years ago. You've grown from 40 to 70. You've stuck within those constraints and you've, you've still been successful. Right? Yeah. I think that's the other part where the impact of the book really compounds that it's easy to make proclamations and then in a year they fall apart. Yeah. Rework was published in 2010 and it was really a compilation of essays and ideas from the early 2000s and forward. So most of these ideas now have about 20 years of validation, if you will, at least in our example behind them. They've stood the test of time to some extent. And I think that's partly why the book keeps selling and partly why the message we have keeps resonating because it continues to be countercultural. It continues to be um, subversive in a way. Uh, business culture changes very slowly. A lot of the sort of ways we think about how to organize people, how relationships between bosses and employees is a very slow moving average. And a lot of the ideas, they're from the early 90s, plenty of them are from the 50s and so forth. And sometimes, occasionally, we have to stop and go like, all right, time out. Let's do some first principles thinking here. Given 2023 or 25 or whatever, what's true now? Let's experiment either direction. That does not mean that everything old is bad. In fact, I think often it means the opposite. We realize the wisdom of traditions when we try to take them apart. Mm. We don't realize why traditions are there because they seem kind of silly. Um, One of the ones I've changed my mind on, and I'm saying this wearing a t-shirt today, is the dress code, for example. There used to be you showed up to the office in a damn suit and you looked presentable and we all kind of looked the same. And then what, mid-90s rolls around and we start thinking like, that's really silly. Silicon Valley goes like, uh, that's bullshit. Take off the tie, all this stuff. 
And we, we forget, why was that there in the first place? Well, one of the reasons was having a sense of um, work self that is yeah. distinct from your self self, from your home self, from your hobby self, from your activist self is a really powerful technique for letting people of different backgrounds work together. If we all just show up in a uniform, the uniform being the business casual suit, whether that's slacks or a tie, yeah. like we, we can melt. We, we can be the same. If we show up with our whole selves, that was one of the worst ideas of the last 20 years, that concept, bring your whole self to work. Um, absolute disaster. And it is a disaster because all of us is going to have spikes. And if you take all those spikes into work and every single opinion you have about every political topic and you flaunt them freely, they're going to create a lot of friction because we're not all alike. We don't think all alike and thank heavens for that, right? But when it comes to work, when we're just trying to create, for example, at our company, create a project management system, you want someone who thinks one thing about, I don't know, any contentious issue, I mean, from the EU, like Brexit, right? You can yeah. imagine that there... It's perhaps quite difficult, at least at the height of, of that discussion, to have a bunch of people who are on the opposite ends of that spectrum actually collaborate on making a project management tool if we're talking about that all day long, right? Yeah. That's just going to lead us to believe that that person is an idiot, whether they think for or against or in or out or whatever it is. Um, and that was the wisdom of the tradition of dressing for business, of showing up with your work self. So that's just an aside to go, just because you think first principles, it does not mean dismantle everything. It does not mean eradicate all traditions. It does mean like, do you know what? There will occasionally be traditions that have outlived their context. It's hard to find out. And we've several times made the mistake of doing that, like demolishing a, tra uh, a tradition. For example, in the early days, we didn't have job titles. We're just like, job titles are stupid. You should just be able to call yourself whatever you want. If you want to be a chief code lizard wrangler, you should be able to do that. And I will be whatever, hula hub um, engineer. And then we realized, you know what? Oh, shit, people change jobs. And the next company might not know what chief lizard wrangler means or what that level of seniority that implies. So we've reverted back to the most boring old school, like you are a junior programmer, you're a senior programmer, you're a lead programmer. And that kind of translates between, and that was a tradition we had. And we had to learn the value of that tradition by dismantling it. So it's not that you can't question things, but it's certain, and it's not that all traditions are bad, but it is that some things eventually will have outlived their, their context. And you, we can't progress either unless we do question things. Yeah, yeah. But something I thought was central and I made, I made a note of was your definition of, of work, work ethic, which was actually in this book. It doesn't have to be crazy at work, which I, which I really liked as a corrective to what we, what we tend to think about when we hear that term, work, work ethic. Yes. Could you define it for us in, in your philosophy. Yeah. So first I'll say work ethic for a lot of bosses means shows up early, goes home late, preferably shows up the earliest and go home the latest if you're the person in the office with the best work ethic, right? It's defined as sort of uh, dedication and dedication is often defined as sacrifice. I don't think that's a healthy definition of work ethic at all. My definition of work ethic and the one we espouse in the book is do you do you do what you said you promised you would, for example? Do you run after problems? Do you try to address things before people ask you for it? Are you a self-starter? Do you take it personally to some extent when customers are having a problem or is that just someone else? Like, There's a real distinction between 
effort and impact. And I, we make that distinction in other aspects as well. But work ethic as effort, I think, is really bad and outdated modern or idea. I don't know if it was ever true, but if it was, it certainly doesn't apply to creative endeavors. Where working 12 hours does not mean you produce more than someone working eight hours necessarily. And I'd argue in most cases not. That what matters more is impact and that that impact comes from a different character and it comes from different traits. And that we should redefine work ethic to mean those things instead, to mean trustworthiness, to mean competence, to mean those kinds of engagements that produce impact. And it's sustainable, not just for three weeks while you sprint your head off, but for three years or even 10 years or even 30 years. Yeah. And, and it speaks to character. You talk about respecting the work, respecting others, respecting yourself. I mean, that, that makes so much more sense to me when we're using that term ethic, right? when, we, when we're yes. talking about virtue yes. and, and values. Um, so, yes. And, and I'm going to And I think those things up. are important. I think yeah. this is the other thing we've, we've kind of drifted. This was another bad attempt at dismantling tradi uh, tradition, is we've tried to attack every form of virtue, that that's silly or that's myopic or that's only true here or here are all the caveats. Yeah, okay, but we got to have some higher ideals. We got to have something to strive for. We got to have some role models. Not everything needs to be deconstructed. Uh, there's a whole discussion here of postmodernism and it's... Uh, destructive effects on, on everything, culture at large, but certainly also work culture. And I think returning to a more innocent age, even if we are kind of in the loop of what that collective um, illusion, if you will, means that that's actually still helpful, that it's still helpful to, to go be earnest, to say what you mean without constantly being ironic, without constantly being all these other things, that um, it comes back to that, bringing your work self to work. That that's actually a liberating term. It's not a constraining term. And while I haven't actually gone the full step, I just have it in my head now that putting on that tie, a lot of people say, oh, the man is forcing you to do something. No, the man is liberating you. Because you know what putting on that tie means? It means you can take it off at the end of the day and you're no longer at work. And now you're yourself and you can go whatever, be a square, be a hippie, be whatever you want to be. And then next morning at nine or whenever you put on the tie again and you're the work person. Having that separation was a real blessing. And I don't think we fully realize what we've lost when we erase the distinction between work and home. And this comes in extra with remote work. I'm a huge proponent of remote work, but holy smokes did that come with some pitfalls where it gets even harder to distinguish between when I'm at work and when I'm at home. Um, one funny example we use in the rework or remote book is an employee who had two pairs of slippers, the work slippers and the home slippers. When he was wearing the work slippers, he was sitting down in front of the computer doing data analysis. When he put on his home slippers, he was like, yeah, do you know what? I shouldn't check email. It's seven o'clock. I think there was an example in, um, it doesn't have to be crazy. What was it? A scientist or a writer. She had a, she has an office for writing and an office for uh, admin, which I love. Yes. Physical distinction is a good thing. And I think we got that for free when we used to commute into an office. Again, I don't want to go back. So this isn't about just going back. This isn't about being eluded. It's not about being overly nostalgic. It's not about wanting to turn back the, the clock on everything. But it is to realize, you know what? Everything that was old is not bad. And there yeah. are actually a lot of 
wisdom in that, some of it which we forgot, and some of it which we could profit from rediscovering. And we're trying to thread that needle with these books. Brilliant. Yeah. And, and I know you mentioned that, that Basecamp is an outlier. I think it is. But what's great about these books is you, you do offer examples of other businesses taking on uh, similar principles and, and being successful with them. So fantastic. Thank you once again. I know you've got to go pick your, your, uh, your kids up. It feels to me like combined, these are a corrective to where we're headed. Um, and yeah, I love your message. Uh, and it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.